Are you tired of working with generic IT providers that rely on you to be the expert? Arc IT goes beyond just fixing your tech headaches. They specialize in proactive IT management, BIM support, and data security for your architecture firm. The team at Arc IT gets your tech, so you can focus on doing your best work. Whether you're a small firm of 10 or a growing practice with 50 or more employees, unleash the full potential of your creative vision with Arc IT. Visit getarcit.com and schedule your free IT assessment today. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our generous sponsors, BetterHelp and Arcat.com. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Iran Chen, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Great to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here. Aran is based in New York City. He is the founder and executive director at ODA. And since establishing ODA in 2007, Aran has earned a reputation for mold-breaking designs that will deliver a better urban future. Having completed more than 50 buildings in just over a decade, he has become one of the most prolific architects in New York. Aran's work has been widely published and around the world and is recognized by the AIA, the Society of American Registered Architects, and several others. In addition to guest lecturers globally, Iran is a professor at Columbia University and New York University. So he's done a whole lot of things in a whole lot of places based in New York City. I'm excited to have this conversation. Iran, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you again, Mark. Great to be here and looking forward to a great conversation. Me too. I'd love to start with your origin story. So go back as far as you want to go back. Share the story that led you to architecture. Who or what inspired you to become an architect? Maybe I should start by saying that I was born in Israel. It's interesting only in the context of my upbringing, I would say. I have four grandparents. All of them are Holocaust survivors, which means that I don't really have an extended family beyond them. That's an interesting situation to grow into. My parents are the sort of the first generation of Israelis, per se. And with that context, I grew up. I had a great and happy upbringing. But quite early in my life, my parents got divorced. And one of my first memories that I think is extremely architectural was when I was six years old. We lived in the southern city of Beersheba. It's a desert city. And what I remember is the complex of our neighborhood, if you will, was made of three row houses arranged in a courtyard fashion, around a courtyard, around a garden. And the garden was, I guess, small enough to become super intimate and to be everybody's courtyard. We felt that this is extension of our homes. And it was big enough to accommodate the multi-generational experience. And I remember every day after school, you know, I would come home with my friends and immediately go down to that courtyard. We'd spend hours playing and talking and, I don't know, doing everything that kids do until around 4 o'clock where my mom would come home from work. She used to be a laboratory technician. 
She'd come home and make dinner and she'd call me from the balcony. And all the balconies were facing that courtyard. But instead of calling my name, she used to whistle to me. Uh, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> yeah. we had a whistle of our own. It's almost like an ancient ringtone, if you will. But here's the amazing part. And I really honestly remember that all of my friends and all their mothers had their own whistles. Each one was distinct and unique. And between four to five o'clock every day, the courtyard would be filled with a symphony of whistles and we would know that the day's over and it's time to go home. And that sensual memory resonated with me for years. And I felt like this is the best place ever. That courtyard to me seems like the best place ever. I remember years later, I haven't been there for many years, but years later I did come back and was underwhelmed by what I found, as you can imagine. But that idea of the intimate intensity of a public space, the level of human interaction on that kind of platform is something that I feel as I grow up, I was seeking for. I was looking at it when I traveled after my army days, I was seeking for it as an architectural student. And I'm still seeking for it today as I develop construction and building in some of the highest densified cities around the world. I would only say, in addition to that, that one of my grandfathers on my mom's side, Eliezer, his name was, he passed about six years ago. He was a kind of skinny guy with smart eyes and pronounced cheekbones, but he always had a childish smile on his face. And as a kid, I was very close to him as I started learning about his personal history and journey and what he's gone through in life. I was equally admiring him as I was almost suspicious. I couldn't understand how a man that has gone through all of this has this kind of energy of positivity and sort of looking at the world from a productive and positive point of view. And as I've grown to become who I am today, I think that his positive approach to life and his optimism is really what kept him going throughout life. And I think that that optimism that I heard from him is one of the key elements that brought me to where I am today. There's a whole bunch of things in there. The courtyard and growing up and the whistle and your grandfather, I can see how that can all sort of influence who you are today. How did you get from that courtyard to New York City? What happened between there and here? You know, in Israel, after high school, you basically have to sign up for the army which I did. I actually served for four years in the Israeli army. And then after that, I felt like I need a break and, and I traveled for a year around the world and then came back and joined the architectural school in Jerusalem. It's called Betzalel, School of Architecture. You're a bit more mature because think about this, between the four years in the army and the year of travel, you start school when you're much older. I was 23 or so. And right after I graduated, and in fact, during my studies already, I figured I'm going to leave the country and I'm going to move to the United States. It was a combination of things that I've felt about the country at large, as well as my desire to break out and to try to explore more. And it seems like New York City was the most radical place on earth that I could imagine. And that's where I went. So you went directly to New York? I went directly to New York. There's a background story that I did spend about a year, 10 months of my youth when I was 15 to 16 
in Seattle because my father was an engineer at the Israeli Air Force, and then he had an exchange program with Boeing. And so we've traveled to the U.S. for those 10 months, and that was enough for me to taste the land of opportunities, if you will. And I kept on dreaming of going back afterwards. Why architecture? Was it the courtyard? Was there something in that courtyard? And when you were in that courtyard and decided, I want to be an architect, did you know that there was a profession of architecture? Who sort of led you in that direction? It's a great question because I don't think there's nobody in our family who's an architect. Of course, my father is an engineer. My mother is a scientist. There's no extended family beyond, much beyond my grandparents. So I don't know. I can tell you, though, that since I remember myself, I was very aware of the immediate environments and the built environment around me, especially as it affects my personal mood, which is not a typical thing, I don't think, for many kids. All of us experience that, but very few of us analyze it. Right. And the memories that I have throughout life, almost all of them relates to place. They relate to place, to buildings, to travel in cities. And so I had that in me. In addition, I guess, I was always very good with my hands, making things, drawing things. There's a memory that my mother keeps on telling me. I was six years old. I literally drew a perspective view of our living rooms with a pencil, and she's got the drawings to prove for it. So I was very good in communicating visually through drawing, through building. And then the, I guess, very good at school, at physics and math. So there's something about psychology, people, built environment, feeling, as well as the technical aspects of, I guess, of my gifts in life that brought me into that profession. I never had a doubt. Yeah, it sounds like you were a born architect. <laughs> <laughs> How lucky I am, right? There's so many yes. people who don't know what they're going to do for years, and I was just stuck with that from the age of six. Yeah, yeah. And so was it that literal? Like, as a child, I'm going to be an architect and just never look back? I would say pretty much. I think that I had my doubts only after I was released from the army. So after these four years of army experiences, I was confused a little bit. The world seemed confusing. I had second thoughts. I was thinking psychology. I was thinking physician. But I very quickly, I, I came back to architecture. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the dangers of deciding when you're six, right? Is that you put the right, blinders exactly. on and you become an architect. And then when you get <laughs> older, you're like, worse. should I have uh, looked <laughs> right. around? I did the same thing. I decided when I was right. 10 and never decided to do anything else. And then when I was around that same age, I was like, is this really what I wanted to do? So what's the story of ODA? So you're in New York. I'm assuming that you get a job in New York. Yeah. What's that story from going to New York to launching your own firm? Well, there's a lot of good stories, but think about this. I'm a new immigrant to New York City. I'm looking for a job. There's funny stories of how I went about this. I did not do a master's degree here, didn't have any relationship or connection to anybody here. I had, in fact, a hard time putting a resume together that is even acceptable. But I did land a job at Perkins Eastman, which is, seems to be like a large enough firm I didn't care so much to go and work for the best architects in the world. I really wanted to have the New York experience and to understand what it means to be a mega architectural firm. Yeah. And I got stuck there for many years, not in a bad way. I mean, I've learned a lot. 
But I was there after four years. I became a principal. I was probably the youngest principal in that firm back then. They discovered that I can design. I can design quickly and well. And we started winning competitions around the world. And then they discovered that I can actually, you know, manage people. I'm okay. And one thing about those firms, I would say, is they totally understand quickly who has the potential to bring money. That's always a driving force. And so they gave me an independence. I built my own studio at Perkins and I was a principal. And then when we're about 30 people, I decided that it's time to go. What kind of work did you do at Perkins Eastman? So in the beginning, we did everything. We used to do competitions globally, health, educational program, school, mixed use, developments in Asia, a lot of different work. But then when I started kind of bringing my own work, it was predominantly residential building in New York City. I understood that to gain independence, you got to bring the work. And so I started reaching out to local developers and convinced them that they would hire me to do residential projects in New York, which was, you know, Perkins didn't solve that, but it wasn't a very strong field. So there was an opening there. I did manage to get some work from developers that are local. And that residential practice have grown to a point where it became very dominant, both in my work at Perkins, but clearly now at ODA as well. So when you left Perkins, you started your own firm? Yes. So the actual story is that I was married then. My wife and I lived on the Upper West Side, a very small one-bedroom apartment walk-up. We had two kids, and the third one was on its way. My wife is a scientist. She used to work at Mount Sinai as a scientist. Our combined salary between myself and hers, you can imagine, was barely paying the rent. But I was happy, and I had this growing feeling in my gut that I need to make a move. And I remember sitting with my wife one weekend and I said, listen, I think this is time. And she said, yeah, do whatever you think is right. But then we said, it's a stupid idea. How the hell are we going to support two kids, three kids without any prospects, really, and, and no savings? And we decided to actually give up on the idea. Until two weeks later, a New York Times magazine had David Ajaya on the cover from all people. And uh, I read the article and his journey and the fact that he opened his own firm as if he can, I can. And that was it. And so I decided uh, I'm just going to do it no matter what. To say my wife supported me every step of the way. There's not much to lose, to be honest. When you make a salary at Perkins Eastman back then, it was really not much at all. You know, what's the worst thing that could happen? So the funniest story is this. On this Friday or Saturday, I decided that that's what I'm going to happen. I start processing that transition during that week. And then I sit with Brad Perkins, who, you know, is the owner of Perkins Eastman. We were very close at that time. And I said, Brad, respectfully, I'm going to decide to leave. He, of course, tried to convince me otherwise, but eventually I was pretty adamant. But I had nothing. So I went to visit one of my clients from Perkins. His name is Ishak Tesler. He was a developer at that time. He's still a close friend which I knew from a previous job that I was working on. And I said, it's not bad and good news. The bad news is I'm living for assessment, so you're going to get somebody else to run our own darn project. And the good news, I'm going to open my own firm, so you should be happy for me. <laughs> and he was a big guy smoking a cigar in my face. It was just, he was a character. 
But back then, when we were sitting, he says, that's quite a shame, he said, because I'm just starting a new project on Mesa Square Park. It's a conversion of the toy building. I don't know if you know, there's two of them in New York City on the west side where Italy is today. And he said, I bought these buildings, going to convert them, put an addition on the roof. I thought of you. And I said, well, you know, you, you can still give it to me, but I'm not Perkinsisman. And he said something like, would you do it for half the fee? <laughs> a typical developer. <laughs> typical developer. And immediately I said, yes, of course I'll do it for half the fee. But it's like you have to realize I don't have a company. I don't have money. I don't have people. I don't have an office. I don't have computers. So it's going to take some time. And I don't have the money to the resource to do it. And he said, well, how much money do you need? And this is all in one meeting. Yeah. And I said, I don't know, maybe $100,000. So in the midst of the cigar smoking, in the kind of theatrical room, he opens up his big drawers and he pulls out this one of those huge checkbooks, you know, that every yeah. page is a checkbook. Yeah. And he puts the cigar aside and he says, $100,000. Who should I write it to? What's the name of the company? I said, I don't have a name. He says, okay, Arancha. And he tears this check out and he says, here you go. You've got 10 days. We're starting to work on my project. And that was it. Wow. Yeah. And then I, of course, the check a week later, rented a studio apartment on the Upper West Side, got some tables from Ikea, a few computers. Three people from my team at Perkins were... I guess, brave enough to join me. And that's how it all started. Did he consider that $1,000 check an investment or was it a retainer? Mark, it wasn't $1,000. It was $100,000. Well, that's what I meant. I meant $100,000. I'm sorry. I missed, I missed that. I, I knew $100,000. Yes. It was a retainer for the work. Of course, we signed the contract later on for half the fee that it should be. And we started working immediately. Wow. Unfortunately, you know, that was 2007. If you think of the time, it's the worst time ever to start a business. Yes. After about six, seven months of even less of working on the projects, Lehman Brothers collapsed. The Lehman Brothers were actually the funding bank for him. The whole thing collapsed. The projects was gone, as well as other small projects we gathered uh, during that time. And we found ourselves very quickly as a new office with no work. Mm. So what did you do? Well, that was the first rule of survival. In the beginning, we had no choice. We started laying off people. And at that point, I had no money to pay the rent. So I called the landlord. I said, I'm sorry, that no money to pay the rent. But I promise you, if you let me stay here at some point in time, I'm going to recover and pay you back. And we, I literally sat down and said, what the hell are we going to do? Should we do a bagel shop down at the, at the street? Should we create courses for interior design online. We really were desperate until one of our employees mentioned that a friend of his who is an architect is a consultant to this billionaire guy, a young billionaire from Blackstone, who have just purchased in the midst of the recession a crazy penthouse at the Trump Tower on the east side. He paid $45 million for it. And he's in the process of looking for an architect for this penthouse. And the story goes, it was that there were 40 architects on that list, including Richard Meyer and many others. And they've gone through the first round and they're down to 10. But if I'm willing, this friend of friends said, 
they're willing to sneak me in into the interview process with the other 10 because there's nothing to lose. They haven't seen him fall for anything yet. Yeah. And they gave me the plans. They set up a date 10 days later. And we've literally designed that 25,000 square foot apartment in those 10 days and got ourselves ready for an interview. And you can imagine what happened. (laughs) (laughs) So we go there against the odds. And one thing I should say, I've really studied everything about that client. Who he is? What's his background? What's his history? And I found it was very interesting. I found that his origin is from Vietnam. His parents are actually refugees. He grew up in Queens next to the airport with five sisters. I don't know if in poverty, but definitely in very simple life. He didn't even go to any particular fancy college. But somehow, I didn't know how, he managed to get into Blackstone. He became a prodigy of Blackstone. And he became a billionaire in like 10, 15 years. And so I decided that that's an incredible story to tell through his apartment. And we've designed the whole theme of the apartment entrance sequence as sort of a journey of crossing from east to west. I offered some crazy things that today, I don't know if I would ever offer, but for example, that there would be a 40-foot waterfall in the apartment that ends in a reflecting pool. And as you enter this crazy apartment, you would cross one side from the east side to the west side of the reflecting pool, and you would cross over a stepping stone and look to the right, and you will see Queens, and that's where he came from. And then the story about bridging between West and East, between his previous life and his current life, that was the story I'm going to sell. Did you feel that that was a risk to do that when you did that? Or were you just confident that that would work? I got to tell you, Mark, every time I come up with a strong concept for a project, it's a risk. But I wouldn't ever win that commission without. Right. There's no way. There was no way that he would hire us any other way. But with somebody who's confident as a young person coming in, telling him a story that touches him. Yeah. And then, of course, presents plans. We did, we did everything. Plans, perspective views. I mean, it was all done. We could go to construction. And I knew when I was presented and looking at him, I knew that we're going to get it. Now the question was, how much is going to scrutinize with us on the fee. Yeah, yeah. You knew <laughs> you had it, did. but you didn't know that was a good thing or bad thing. <laughs> Which he did, of course. But it was very quick. The next day over, they called me, his uncle or somebody to lunch. He said, listen, the fee that we're going to pay you is X. I knew that the X is about a quarter of what all the other fancy architects would get. I said yes. And the next two or three years, two years, there was a New York City story. The world is in recession, and we're flying on private jets around the world to pick stone, to pick art, and that really saved our office. That job and a few other small ones, and we've managed to weather the recession in 2010. Things started to open up for us. Wow, that's an incredible story. <laughs> I mean, you clearly have a lot of confidence today, and it sounds like you had a lot of confidence then. Was that a significant part of that success of making it through the recession, earning that project, and then growing it from that to what you have today? Absolutely, 100%. This is not the only hardship or the only point of contention or slowdown that we've seen. Yeah. There's many, many more after that. 
But I think the ability to overcome those situations and many others, the ability to say yes to opportunities, even if they seem crazy or unattainable, and the ability to go all the way with confidence to achieve them has saved us time and time again. And also, to be honest, Mark, we're not in a survival mode anymore because we have a hundred people firm. But I still have a lot, we still have a lot that we want to achieve and want to accomplish. And the only way that we owe every time that there's a stepping stone for us requires a daring move with a big investment and going all the way. Yeah. I mean, that's the takeaway here is that all through your life, you've taken the big move, right? You've taken that big risk that could fail miserably, but do it with confidence and preparation. I, you know, I'm hearing that as well. When you presented that project, you understood who he was. You did the research. You knew exactly what his story was. You presented the entire project, the design finished, right? So he could see it. He could know the skill that you have. So he had no questions, right? Here it is. Here's my skill. Here's my abilities. Take it or leave it, right? And you had confidence that he would take it. Yeah, and, and we have to realize sometimes if you do all of this, if you go all the way, if you put the investment, and it doesn't mean that you're going to get it always. I don't want anybody to be misleaded by that. But it's very hard to say no to. From his position, here is this young firm they brought amazing plants. They brought amazing 3D. They've already designed the apartment without me paying them a dime. They tell me an amazing story. They come with confidence. Where can I lose? I'm going to pay them less than everybody else. They're going to do everything for me. And I see the talent. So I think that, you know, sometimes in life, those risks are big and they require big investment. But overall, if you do them right, it's hard to resist. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Architects, listen up. Is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Regardless if you have a clinical mental health issue like depression or anxiety, or if you're just a human who lives in this world and is going through a hard time, therapy can give you the tools to approach your life in a very different way. I know this community of small firm architects very well, and I see, I see many of you struggling. That's why I reached out to this episode's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a platform that makes finding a therapist easier because it's online, it's remote, and by filling out just a few questions, BetterHelp can match you with a professional therapist in as little as a few days. It's easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist. There's a link in the show notes. It's betterhelp.com architect. Just use that link, betterhelp.com architect. Clicking that link helps support this podcast, but it also gets you 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. So you can connect with a therapist and see if it helps you. If you need someone to talk to, consider online therapy with BetterHelp. Click the link in the show notes or visit betterhelp.com slash architect. That's betterhelp.com slash architect. Thank you to BetterHelp for supporting this podcast and for supporting our community of small firm architects. For over 30 years, RCAT has been providing AEC professionals with high quality and up-to-date building product information. 
Today, RCAT.com is much more than a product catalog with BIM, CAD, and specifications created in collaboration with manufacturers. Beyond that, RCAT.com also offers lead data, continuing education resources, newsletters featuring the latest projects and products, and don't forget, detailed podcasts. RCAT.com is truly the one-stop shop for everything architecture. Try it out. Go to RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. So what does ODA, you said 100-person firm, what does ODA look like today and what type of work are you doing today? I would say the first 10 years of, of ODA were predominantly in New York City. We've worked with many developers from very small ones, Brooklyn, Queens, North Boroughs, to bigger ones in Manhattan, we've done rental and condos. We've completed 55 buildings in New York City alone. And that was really our biggest achievement. Uh, and we can talk about that separately of how we see housing in the city growing, et cetera. Then we started getting phone calls from national clients. So we started working in DC and the West Coast. And, you know, Detroit and Seattle, and many other places, Chicago. And today we are, I would say, predominantly international. The firm today operates in about 14 different countries. We love New York City. We love working on the same type of projects, the same scale projects we had before. But the reality shifts, the economy shifts, our scale kind of brings us to different type of opportunities. The majority of our projects are still within the private sector, so they are developers' work, if you will, residence, hospitality, office, mixed-use projects. But they're increasingly urban in content. They're increasingly particular about our what we think buildings should contribute to the urban built environment. And then we also work with universities, and we're trying to expand towards educational work and cultural work, these are not easy to penetrate, but we're getting there. Yeah. So you've grown the firm to 100 people. You've grown it from one single project to hundreds of projects. You've grown it to urban design. You do a significant amount of urban work now. One of the projects I was looking at on your website is the DC Greenways. And I'm looking at that as you're telling your story as a six-year-old playing mm -hmm. in that courtyard and looking at the DC Greenways <laughs> earlier today in preparation for our conversation, I see a connection. Right. Can you talk a little bit about DC Greenways and is there a connection to that story? Yeah, there's absolutely a connection. I think that the difference between now and 15 years ago when, we, when I started the practice is my ability to articulate to myself and to my employees and our ability to talk about what we stand for. In the first years, we stood for the same things. It's always intuitively what I believe in, but we couldn't articulate it well. I think now we're much better in articulating what, what we care about. But I call this fractal porosity. And I'm going to explain yep. two very difficult words. Let's start with porosity. Porosity is the definition of the gap between solids or the void fraction. The void fraction is usually when we talk about landfill or, or rocks or any material, they have the solid pieces and then the, the gap between them. And the level of gap within a material is called the porosity, the void fraction. 
And when we talk about porosity of a material or building, we talk about the level of perforation that it allows for air, for light, for movement within its envelope. So porosity is the gaps, the inhabited gaps, if you will, in architecture. Now, if we look at a city, for example, in terms of porosity, we could say, we could start thinking that the buildings are the solids and everything between them, the streets, the sidewalks, the gardens, the parks, are the gaps, the voids. Yes. And how we design those voids is how we design the porosity of the sea. What is fractal? Fractile is a term that was coined in 1975 by Benoit de Mandelbrot, a French mathematician who recognized that in nature, there's different patterns that repeat across different scales. For example, if you look at a delta of a river from, you know, from outer space, it looks very similar, almost identical to if you zoom in and look at, at that delta from close by. Yeah. The tree, for example, the branches of the tree, you know, an Italian lettuce, the flowers of the Italian lettuce looks like the Italian. That, this is fractality. So to me, the idea of fractal porosity is the design of the gaps within city across different scales. From the very little, let's say, your unit, your apartment, to the building, to a block, to a neighborhood, to a city, where the gaps are the places of opportunity to blur the line between private and public. The gaps are the places of opportunity to engage with people at different scale. The gaps are the whistling mother in the courtyard. The gaps are those areas of that I call the threshold of fascination, of awe, of experience. So what we do at ODA today is explore the ways by which this fractal porosity can impact the life in the city. So now let's go to DC. Yeah. It was, it was kind of a long introduction. DC reached out to us, actually the, the economic development partnership in DC, reached out to me and said, look, we're, we're kind of stuck. We have a, a major event with the mayor. And we want you to be the keynote speaker, but we'd like, if you don't mind, to talk about architectural ideas of how the hell we're going to get out of our situation. We're in downtown DC in the Golden Triangle. We've got 80% of the building are office building, and 70% of that are empty. We have a disaster in our head. It's an urban disaster. It's a financial disaster. We're stuck. We don't know what to do. And that's happening in cities across the world right now, right? And that's happening in cities across the world. And I was thinking, in fact, they gave me about two months, and we used this two months as a project, literally, to think about what would be an architectural vision that you don't have to implement tomorrow, but that would open people's eyes to the opportunity. And what we discovered was that while the D.C. blocks are even larger than New York City blocks, they've got gigantic building in these areas, they're very deep, they're old, it's hard to convert them into anything else. The streets and the sidewalks are literally not enough for a meaningful public space. We talk about porosity. There's zero porosity in the grid of D.C. downtown. It's major blocks of cities, very wide streets. Most of them are taken by cars. Linear sidewalk experience that leads nowhere. And very few parks. Well, at the same time, every block, because that's how the city was designed, has these service alleyways. This crosses through the block almost like a river, 
they were all meant to service the building for garbage, for moving, without, et cetera. So these little alleyways behind the big blocks. Behind the big blocks. Yeah. And we started thinking about porosity on an urban scale. And what would happen if we would come up with an idea that the city can adopt as a new zoning regulation that allows building, specific building owners, especially the ones who captures a big part of that block and are way too deep, to cut the building at the backside, not at the street side, where they are adjacent to the alleyways, and open up an internal courtyard within the DC block. The area that will be cut from those buildings would be allowed to add to the top. So you basically take bad FAR and create value FAR, the penthouses. It's a huge incentive for developers. So I just want to clarify for the listeners, you're literally demolishing a section of the building in the middle of the block. Correct. And taking the quantity that you're demolishing and allowing the developer to now build new development on top of the building. Correct. With that same amount of square footage that you've removed from the middle. And now you have this void in the middle of the block. Exactly. So what did you get? First of all, as a developer, now the building, the big building that you had, has become much narrower, which allows you to convert it easier, not only to residential, to whatever, because there's more exposure to lighting. Then you've taken bad floor area and you create premium floor. Right. The top, there's always premium, regardless of what it is. For that exchange, you would then take that courtyard that you give the city and you would create the landscape at the hardscape on your expense, not on the city expense. And you'll make what we call privately owned public space, ops. Yeah. Now, so that's step number one. Now imagine now that this happens on every given block in downtown DC, and all of a sudden the alleyways become pedestrian walkways that leads between one amazing courtyard to another, to another, to another. The second step is what do we do at the ground floor indoor space, which is traditionally is the retail. The retail is dying there. It's not doing very well. It's also very deep. And to that, we said, let's do a similar thing. Let's propose an inclusionary retail program to the city. Inclusionary housing, we know what it is. It's affordable housing program. Inclusionary retail means that if I own a retail at the ground floor that is failing, I can give it to the city and the city would give me some incentives in return. They can give me the same thing, floor area that is equivalent to the retail right at the top. They can give me taxes, whatever it is. There's going to be some exchange. In return, the city would reach out to the big institutional bodies that surrounds this area. Museums, universities. You have Georgetown University. I mean, you've got the Smithsonian Museum. And you would offer them space within downtown for almost free for their accelerate program. For example, I spoke to the Smithsonian's and said, oh my God, we can use this for artist studios and lectures and stuff like that. I spoke to, spoke to Georgetown University and said, oh my God, we can use this for event space, which we don't have real estate. So basically do an exchange program. Yeah. These ground floor will become activators for future public use. Because all of a sudden you've got hundreds of students coming. In return, small food and beverage would start to appear. Right. And these courtyards will be active now by people that come and will propel residential developers to come in as well, start converting some of these buildings to residential, and so on and so forth. And eventually, with this vision, we create value to the building above that lost their value. 
by creating a ground floor public realm that is accepted. And that narrative is very different than what people speak about today. Today, everybody says, oh, how do we give value to the buildings? Let's convert them. Well, yes. But before you convert the building, you need people to want to be there. Right. If people would want to be there, you create value. And that formulation of giving, of exchange, if you will, of real estate, which on one hand benefits, not only benefits, can revolutionize our city. Think about the center of DC right now, that is, nobody goes there unless you work. Now becomes this draw for families, for kids, for our students, for elderly, all these amazing series of courtyards and parks. And at the same time, you fix another problem, which is the real estate problem, by creating value to buildings that otherwise lost their value. It's a win, win, win. And more wins. More wins. There's no downside to it. So <laughs> was it embraced? I, I know you presented it to the leaders. And I don't know when you did that. Is there any progress on that? We've done it a few months ago. There's huge excitement, super well received by everyone. Mostly not because tomorrow they're going to do it, and we'll talk about that also, but mostly because it's shown it's going to strike light on an optimistic vision that could happen yeah. in downtown because everybody feels like this is, this is it. Dead end. Right. Where we go from here. And I think it opened up a lot of curiosity and thought process of many different architects and policymakers on a different way. Now, you know, everything happens slowly in cities, especially in D.C., where it's also a state. I'm on a steering committee for the mayor to try to solve that problem. I think it's going to take a few to be able to execute some of those ideas. But I'm pretty confident that some form of what I described hit D.C., but also New York City. Yeah, it's such a good idea. And I'm sure not only DC would embrace that, but cities around the world would embrace that because that same problem that you just described is happening everywhere with these deep, you know, office buildings that people aren't using anymore. And that's permanently changed, right? That way we work is shifted societally permanently. And so there has to be solutions to these buildings, right? And tearing them down and rebuilding new is sure that's one way to do it, but that's a pretty expensive way and it disrupts the urban and fabric. And this is a really interesting solution to the problem. I watched the video on your website. And for anybody who's listening and wants to learn more, you should go to oda-architecture.com, look for the DC Greenways project and click on it. There's a video there that shows around presenting this idea as a keynote and has video and diagrams of what he's just described. I recommend that you go watch that. It's a really fascinating conversation that you've had in that presentation, Iran. Thank you, Mark. What a great story to hear you playing around as a six-year-old in that courtyard in Israel and now working in DC, creating courtyards to solve <laughs> you know, problems. It's such a great story. So I appreciate you for coming by here and sharing that story. Before we wrap up here, I'd love for you to answer my question that I ask all my guests. You're talking right now with two thousands of architects, mostly small firm business owners. You've done that. You've grown your firm from a small firm to a large firm. What would you say is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Well, every time I've asked on a big topic to choose one thing, it's always difficult. Yes. So I'm going to cheat and maybe tell you two things. Okay. 
The first thing I would say is we have to embrace decision-making. And it sounds easy and obvious, but in reality, it's very difficult. Every time you have a small office or a new office and you want to kind of expand it or you want to grow and you want to survive, you have to take hard decisions. And the hard decisions had to do with, you know, do I stay in my small office? Do I rent a bigger office? Do I hire more people and risk the thing? Do I stay small? You know, do I take on this project with a risky client or should I not do it? And quite often what we do, the decisions are so difficult and this, it's so they seem so, you know, instrumental yeah. that we don't take those decisions. Yes, you freeze. And the... We just freeze yeah. and we say, well, let's not decide now. And you cannot grow a business without making decisions all the time, every day. It doesn't mean that all of your decisions are going to be great, but there's no way for office to grow without making constant, tough and important decisions and go with them. So that, that's number one. I've seen so many young architects come to me and they say, well, you know, for three years I thought about, should I do this or should I do this? Like, for, really? For three years you thought you should make one decision one way or another and move on. The second seems obvious, but not obvious thing that I would say to young architects is say yes. Say yes. It's sometimes very difficult. We say, oh, you know, we don't get the right projects and you know, the kind of clients that come our door, we don't like them. And what they want us to do is really not what we dream of doing. And there's millions of excuses why we say no. We don't even notice. I know because I have been helping some young architects that opened offices that used to work here. And I see how they manage situations like that. It's very easy to say, well, you know, I, when I decide to open an office, I dream of doing something like that. And all of a sudden, they give me this. It's really not for me. And the problem with that, I'm not saying, you know, there's some strategy that says, no, I'm just going to stick to my guns and I'm just going to do this. And that might be okay, too, on a long term. I agree. Yeah. But I think sometimes saying yes and just doing a better job than everybody else on that yes is what takes you forward. And that's the approach that I've taken. I never look down on opportunities. Doesn't mean that we take every project come our way, no way. But I, when I look back and think of what opportunities we had at ODA in the beginning and what was the prospect and what we did with it, we've given our clients much, much, much better buildings than they ever expected. And the outcome of some of these small assignments for some unrecognized developers were fundamental for us to grow. So for me, it's not so much about which project should I take or not, but more what do you do with that project? So that, this would be my two. Yeah. I have many others, but we'll stick to two. That's great advice. Great advice. Embrace the decision and say yes. It is. Very valuable advice. I know so many architects who struggle with moving forward, right? And it's really just like you said, just make the decision. Yes or no? Just yes or no? And if it's yes, go ahead. Go ahead with it. But be told, once you make the decision, go all the way. Yeah, yeah. And that's very much in alignment with your story, for sure. His name is Iran Chen. It's spelled E-R-A-N. Chen, 
The website is oda-architecture.com. Go there, check it out. Go check the DC Greenways project. And you have a book coming out, right, Aran? Yes, very excited to announce a new book, the second book. The first book we did was called Unboxing New York. We sold about 5,000 copies. I think we're out of books any longer. So even if you want to buy the first one, it doesn't exist until we'll publish it again. The second book is a beautiful photography of our recent work and things that have been built. It tells the story that we just shared now, from small to large. It tells the story of fractal porosity. I encourage everybody to get a copy that would make us very happy. And also, hopefully, we can have more like-minded people that we can share ideas with. Sounds great. When that book is released, send us the link, and we will put a link on the show notes for this episode. So when people are hearing us talk about it, they can click the link. I will do. I think it's, it's available already to pre-order, and it comes out formally in March. Okay, we will find that link and we'll put them on the show notes. So go to the show notes for this episode and uh, and click the link and check out the book. I'm sure it'll also be on the website at oda-architecture.com. Aran, thank you. Thank you for coming by here and sharing your story. Fascinating story. I love stories. I love to understand <laughs> where architects start and the journey that it takes to get to where they are. And you have a fascinating story, inspiring and motivational for sure. So thank you for coming by here, sharing your story. Also, the work that you're doing is impactful. It's making our world a better place. So thank you for dedicating yourself to architecture and helping to change the world in a much better way. And thanks for coming by here and joining us at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark, so much. It was a pleasure having a conversation. Thanks. You're welcome. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a link with a friend. That is the best way to help us grow. And that's how we have grown to serve thousands of architects just like you. Share a rating, write a review, but most important, share a link to this episode that you just listened to. Go send it off to a friend. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode. Links to the sponsors and all the resources that we discussed today in today's episode. They're all found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Entree Architect Podcast select episodes are available for continuing education credit. Go learn more at gablemedia.com slash members. And if you are a small firm architect, listen up, architects. Join us today at Entree Architect Network, the worldwide organization for small firm entrepreneur architects. That's you with monthly business training, business resources, special session webinars, mastermind groups, and a thriving community of small firm architects. Your peers are there. Hundreds of them are there already. We will provide you with the support and the encouragement that you need to succeed. Hey, and this is super exciting. This is new, coming in 2024, Entree Architect Coaches. Yes, finally, after all these years, business coaching for small firm architects. It's coming to Entree Architect Network in early 2024. Join us. Try Entree Architect Network for free for 30 days. It's free for 30 days. Visit network.entrearchitect.com to learn more. That's network.entrearchitect.com to learn more. Try it. Come join us. Try it for 30 days. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name 
is Mark R. LePage. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.